And, and gosh, like, again, I feel like I've just limped to the end of 2021. Maybe you feel the same. How do we keep the reality of God's grace fresh for us? We'll answer that question this morning. And thirdly, and this is such an important question, if you call yourself a Christian, this will actually help you see if that's actually true. How do I know if I've received God's grace? Big questions, but Ephesians 2 will help us answer them. So how about we pray as we dig in? Well, Lord our God, we pray that this morning um, you would please help us have eyes to see what you're willing to, to say to us, what you've been willing to reveal to us through your word. Give us ears to hear your voice, not just to see black and white words on a page, but, but rather um, to hear your Holy Spirit speaking through them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've got a Bible, open up, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, grab your phone, go to Google, and just type Ephesians 2. Ephesians with a PH. And uh, that'll pull you up to the, the passage. Uh, it's really good if you've got this in front of you, you can actually see what the words say. So yeah, have your Bible, have your phone there. Uh, Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. And uh, there are two kinds of people, right? There are those who prefer the bad news first, and there are those who prefer the good news first. Who would say they're a good news first kind of person? Put up a hand. Who would say they're good news first? Only like Glenda. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, It actually makes sense sometimes to have the bad news first, doesn't it? Most of the time it does. You get it out of the way. But also sometimes the good news doesn't actually make sense unless you first get the bad news, right? So, you know, imagine you wake up at 5 a.m. on Boxing Day morning to a call and, and you pick up the phone. It's, hello, this is Gosford Police. Just letting you know everything's fine, right? <laughs> Click. Like, thanks for the status update. That's fantastic. It makes no sense. But if you get that same call and it goes something like, hello, this is Gosford Police. Somebody's stolen your car. But good news, we found it and everything's fine. Now, it's different, isn't it? The good news, everything's fine. It only makes sense with the bad news, someone's stolen your car. So too, when it comes to the good news about God's grace. You see, Paul starts in this passage by giving us the bad news first, so that the good news makes sense. He actually talks about what we are without Christ, without God's gracious intervention. Look how he begins in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And just pause there. And you might say, really? Look at that word, dead. Really? I mean, I'm living and breathing. I'm here, I'm alive. <laughs> How can you say that I'm dead? Well, physically we're alive, but the claim here is that we are spiritually dead. Big claim. Not a popular claim. I mean, in our world today, of course we want to say, well, everyone, it's self-esteem and, and all of this sort of stuff. This cuts in the face of all that, doesn't it? We are spiritually dead people. Now, why does Paul say that? Well, keep reading. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course or the ways of this world. You see, being dead in sin is not just like a nice, airy-fairy sort of poetic metaphor that Paul uses here. It's concrete reality. It is a description of all of us who follow the course or the ways 
of this world. Now, obviously, there are lots of good things about the world around us, yes? But, and here's something you might not have thought about too much, um, many of the world's values, the, the worldviews that are represented around our world today, very much cut against God's design for us as people. He made us in his image, he's made us with a way to live, he's made us with a way to relate to each other and to him, and many of the world's values and practices actually go against those. So, just for example, the world says, and this has been a popular belief now for 20, 30 years, that there is no objective truth, right? There's no truth that's somewhere out there. Truth is something in here. It's tr truth is what I make it. Truth is what I see it to be, right? Or, and this is, I think this is actually, there's a new view coming in here that's replacing that view. Uh, truth is actually what the majority of people feel or say to be true. And if you don't agree with that majority of people and the public consensus, well, then you believe something untrue. Right? So there is actually truth and untruth, but it's, it's defined by what the majority of people say is in here. By contrast... God says there is truth. There's truth out there. There's truth actually found in him. He's the definer of truth. Jesus himself says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the arbiter of truth. And so you see, these two things are in conflict. You, you can't have absolute truth found in God and in Jesus Christ, and then on the other hand, truth is what you make of it. These two things don't fit together. And yet, um, you know, people believe that this is true and all of us at different points want to be the ones that decide what is true. Another example, the world says that life is short. There's nothing that comes after the grave, right? Therefore, make the most of this life as you can. Climb the ladder, experience as much as you can or, or find the right relationship and enjoy it. If that relationship runs its course, dump it get a new relationship. I know it's speaking harshly, but if you just want to look at cut and dry, what are the values of our world? That's it. That's why the divorce rate is so high. But God says life is not short. This life is just the start. In fact, living for eternity is more important. One more example. The world says do what's best for you and perhaps even those in your little sort of sphere of people that you like, right? But God says, live to worship me, live to worship God and love others, not just those in your sphere, but those who are very different to you. Even those who believe very differently to you and live very differently to you. Love them. And I could keep going on, but you can see the point here. God's values and the world's values are two very different things. But why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that we say, well, you're dead in sin if you follow the world's values. Well, it's because ultimately, the world's values are not neutral. They're not neutral. There's actually someone behind them. Bending these values away from God and his design for us, there's someone behind them. And I don't mean like a conspiracy theory. Okay, This isn't like people in the government are lizard people or something like that. Uh, there's a real somebody standing behind the world's values. Look at who it is. Again, verse 2. We walked following the course of this world, following who? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, 
Who is this? Is the prince of the power of the air? This is a way of, of the scriptures talking about Satan. Okay, the adversary, the one who was there in the garden, probably tricking Adam and Eve, uh, the one who across human history has tried to bend people away from God and his design, uh, the one who is actually very much against human good, and that the scriptures say is a murderer and liar from the beginning. A real figure, a real and living being that actually exists in human history, not just a metaphor. This is Satan. And he works through the world's values to cause us to go against God. Picture it something like a fisherman with a hook. So imagine here's, here's us and like we're fish in the sea, right? Imagine that. And Satan has a fishing line. He casts it out and the hook is the world's values. If he gets us on the hook using the world's values, he's got us, right? He's managed to influence us and lead us away from God. Now, how is it that a fish gets on a hook? With bait. Of course. What's the bait? Well, it's not just the world's values itself. That's a hook. The bait actually is our flesh within us. Take a look there again. Verse 3. So we've seen that the prince of the power of the air is there, bending people away from God. Um, and we are among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, etc., etc., etc. The passions of our flesh, that's the bait. And so there is something within us that actually want what, wants what Satan has to give. We want what the world has to give us as well. Put it this way. I give you two options. You can either live your life with somebody in charge of you who makes decisions as to how you ought to live and what you ought to do and how you ought to think about things. You can have that, or you can have a life where you're in charge, and you get to decide what you do, and you get to decide what you think, and, and all of that. Which are you going to choose? Like, obviously, <laughs> in our flesh, in our self, in our sinful nature, of course we want to be in charge. We don't want someone telling us what to do, much less God. We want the world to revolve around us as such. We want to be in charge, especially for us as Aussies with like the spirit of Ned Kelly flowing through our veins, right? So what do we do? Well, we take the bait. We're on the hook. Satan's got us. And what happens to the fish that takes the bait? They die. Thus we are dead in sin, having taken the hook of the world's values because of the bait of our sinful nature that wants to be in charge, not God. We end up dead in our sin, which becomes even more terrifying when you consider what that actually means for us. Look at the end of verse 3. That we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, the outcome of disobeying God and being dead in sin, is that we receive wrath. We receive judgment, God's judgment. And this is not like, like, don't get the wrong picture of God here. This is not like God's temper, you know, finally snaps. You know, you kids have left the towel in the bathroom for the last time. You know, it's, it's not that. God is actually very patient. I mean, if you want to sit down and, and read the scriptures, go from Genesis 1 and, and just read your way through, what you'll see is this, this uh, recollection of history where people consistently go against God, consistently abuse and hurt each other, and yet God 
is so patient in trying to work with them to bring them back to him, right? <laughs> you want to read the Bible, that's what you'll see. God is very patient, but if we persist in a lifetime of saying to God, God, I don't want you. I don't want you in charge of my life. I don't want you involved in my life. I don't want you. Then at the end of the day, he'll say, well, okay, I'll give you what you want. But what that is, is an eternity without God. It's an eternity without God's blessings. It's eternity without anything good because he's the author of good. And here's a glimpse of that, all right? Uh, we know that the reality of this is called hell. And the Bible has a bit to say about hell. It says it's a real place. It's a place where you're conscious. But uh, there's sort of an illustration of hell that the Bible points us towards. It's the word Gehenna. Because uh, often when Jesus talks about hell, it's translating this word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a real place. It was a real place just outside of Jerusalem in this sort of ravine, okay? And um, some sort of a century before Jesus was around, uh, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews who lived there, believed that in this ravine there was a, a serial killer who went around just like murdering everyone who went through there. And so they, as you can imagine, stayed far away <laughs> from Gehenna. There's the serial killer zone. We don't go there. So instead, what they do is just ship their garbage over to Gehenna. Because, you know, no sewerage system, no auto trucks that come and pick up your bins. It's got to go somewhere. Oh, let's dump it in that place that no one wants to go to. So there's all the garbage piling up in Gehenna, just outside Jerusalem. And of course, when there's too much garbage, what do you do? Set it on fire. And so there's this place, right? It's the serial killer dumping ground that's often on fire. That's Gehenna. Would you like to live there? Absolutely not. And that is but a glimpse of the reality of what hell is like. It's a tiny glimpse. Because think about it. Hell is actually much worse than any illustration could ever give us. Like our, our human minds can't actually conceive of it. We can only sort of understand it by negation, by actually saying what it's not, right? God's blessing is not there. Think about all the good we enjoy in our world. Right, even to the point of, of sunshine and a warm summer's day. Uh, think about the good of relationships, joy, purpose, meaning, all of these things. These are all God's blessing, what we call his common grace, given to everybody, whether they want him or not, whether they believe in him or not. We all experience God's common grace. Hell is a place where that is not there. All the good things of life in this world. Uh, nothing good, nothing hopeful, nothing that brings joy, nothing that brings meaning or purpose, and no escape. This is hell, and this is the outcome, the just outcome, of rejecting God in this life. This is where we're all heading. This is the bad news. Dead in sin because of our disobedience to God, and what can we do about it? Nothing. What can a dead person do? They're dead. They can't do a thing. This is the bad news. But then you get to what I think is one of the sweetest words in the whole Bible. Look at it at the start of verse 4. It's the word, but. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, here's the good news. God shows us grace, undeserved favor, 
He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. We were dead in sin, but he opens the way for us to be made alive through Christ. We were deserving of wrath and judgment and hell, but he opens the way for us to be saved by his grace through Christ. This is good news. But remember, the good news only makes sense when you have the bad news first. Perhaps you feel like this concept of grace is just overly familiar. It's lost its freshness. You're at the end of a tiring year. I wish I could feel this. Remember, grace is one of the easiest things to forget. (laughs) Perhaps this truth doesn't strike you like it once did. Perhaps actually, maybe it hasn't struck you before. Here's the thing. The extent to which we are overcome by God's grace is in almost direct proportion to how much we understand our sin. How much we understand our state without God. There's a guy, uh, Thomas Watson, who says this, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So if you've lost the sweetness of God's grace, look at the bitterness of the bad news. Dwell on that. We were dead in sin. Consider the horror. We were bound for hell. Consider the terror. There's nothing we could do about it. It's bad news, but remember it. Because the good news makes no sense without the bad news. And in a time where the world wants to say, just only speak about what's positive about people, this is actually the key to seeing what's really positive about us and our future. The the bad news has to be embraced before we get to the good news. But then, of course, we do come to the good news. Here's the good news of God's grace. Through Jesus, everything can change. Here's one thing. For a start, we can receive mercy and kindness instead of wrath. Look there again at verse 4. Remember, we deserve to be cut off from God forever, but God is rich in mercy. That word in verse 4, look at it there on the page. He is rich in mercy. How rich is God? Trick question. How rich is God? Right? Think about the richest person in, in the world today. There are a number. There's, there's actually a number who sort of have like the 100 billion plus. Uh, one of those, to take a famous name, would be Bill Gates. Uh, he's worth 124 billion at the moment. And, and that's not because he's continually earning money from Microsoft, which is the company he founded. He long ago left that company. He's just been doing philanthropic work. He's been doing charity work. And yet, he's one of the richest people on earth. Now, imagine... If Bill Gates found you, right? found you, Lisa, found you, Reynard, found you, Harriet, and, and said, Harriet, right? I'm going to spend the rest of my life using all of the wealth at my disposal to show you as much kindness as I can. Now, imagine that. Like more money than you could ever actually spend in a lifetime, $124 billion. Imagine that, right? The riches of a person's kindness, and yet it pales in comparison to the riches of God's mercy and God's kindness. Take a look again, verse 7 this time. You get the word rich appearing again. Do you see it there? The incomparable riches of God's grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus is actually beyond compare. Even the $124 billion of Bill Gates is but a grain of sand compared to like the Simpson Desert of God's kindness. 
the riches of God's kindness. And yet, physical riches, of course, only last so long, but the claim here is that God's kindness, in fact, lasts forever. It says here uh, again in, in verse 7 that his kindness towards us uh, will be shown in the coming ages, that is, into eternity, forever and ever and ever. And so here's a challenge. Try to make a list of all the ways God's mercy and kindness come to us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you've been a Christian for a little while, just, just try and mentally make a list for a moment. What are all the ways that Jesus' death and resurrection brings God's kindness, mercy, goodness, and love into our life? Try and make that list. And kids, think about all the things you got for Christmas, kids. Hopefully you got some good stuff. Run through that list in your head, what you got for Christmas, okay? Think about what your favorite gift was. Think about, uh, maybe as it goes down, like what, what are the, the dodgy gifts you got? <laughs> but, but you've probably got a pretty good list of, of presents that you got that you're excited about, right, for Christmas? Well, funny thing, I remember being a kid and getting all these presents and being so excited, and then, you know, a few days later, or maybe a few months later, or maybe even next year by the time of the next Christmas, you're a bit bored of them, aren't you? Like the things you get, they, they wear out or they break or they're not as exciting. Here's the difference, right? And adults, coming back to you as well, you've got your list there. The things that God gives to us through Jesus never run out. They are always there for us, forever and ever and ever. They are the gift that never stops giving. And it's a really long list of gifts that God gives us. Think about it. This is just what comes to us through Jesus. He forgives all of our past sin, all the things we ever did against God and other people. If we're in Christ, all of it forgiven. He forgives our present sin in the moment where we choose to sin. He forgives it. He forgives all our future sin, even the things that we don't know we're going to do yet. God knows, and he forgives it through Jesus. He adopts us into his family. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us the Holy Spirit, his very presence with us, so that we might grow to become more like Christ. He frees us from the trap of worldly values and Satan's power and the tyranny of the flesh within us. He gives us true purpose. He gives us true and lasting peace. He gives us true and lasting joy, true and lasting hope. He takes away our guilt and our shame and our despair, all of it. He gives us an eternal relationship with himself, which is only possible because of his forgiveness. And this list just keeps growing for eternity, right? This is the riches of God's kindness. And if you are in Christ, God chooses to spend the whole rest of eternity saying to Lisa, to Reynard, to Harriet, to anyone who is in Christ, I'm going to show you all the kindness and love that I have to give. Isn't that just unthinkable? It's absolutely unthinkable. In fact, it's the opposite of what we deserve. And yet, in fact, that, that's why grace is one of the hardest things to believe. But this is what God has done for us in his great love. He gives mercy and kindness instead of wrath. Here's another angle on it. He gives life instead of death. Notice verse 5. He made us, even when we were dead in our sins, our trespasses, he made us alive together 
with Christ. Think about it this way. It's like God walks up to our open grave, right? And imagine this isn't like a a nice, you know, mahogany wood coffin or something like that. This is just like the body is in the grave and it's stinking, it's fetid. He walks up to our grave, rich with the stench of our sin, all our opposition to him, all our abuse of other people that he has made and loves, and he goes, I love this person, (laughs) this dead person who's done nothing but disobey me. I want them alive with me. I want them to share a relationship with me. And so I'm going to come to them, even though they're dead, and I'm going to raise them to life. Again, unthinkable. And besides, how does that work? How is it that God takes someone who's dead and makes them alive? Well, here's how. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, right? So when God looks at Jesus in that moment on the cross, he actually sees all of my sin, all of your sin. If you're in Christ, it has been placed on Jesus. And then he dies a sinner's death. Remember, the wrath that we deserve, the judgment we deserve, is placed on Jesus instead of us. It's a substitute. It's an exchange. He faces Gehenna. He faces hell, being cut off from God for us. Remember those words that Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying God has disappointed him or let him down. He's saying that there in that moment, he was cut off from his father God. It's actually the first time in all of eternity where the father and son, first and second person of the Trinity, were actually in some way separated. Where God turned his back on Jesus, as it were, on blessing Jesus, and in fact sent upon him the curse of our judgment. Jesus took it for us. Again, unthinkable. And then God raised him from the dead on the third day, showing that he truly is the Son of God, but also showing that all of those who put their trust in Jesus have their sin forgiven because Jesus has dealt with it, and they are raised to new life with him. In fact, you get that word with in this passage several times. We are raised, made alive together with Christ. And maybe I'm saying all of this, maybe you haven't heard it before, or maybe you have, but it just hasn't, it's, it's like striking you in a new way here. Maybe you're hearing all of this, all this that God has done and promises to do, and you're going, well, what on earth could that cost? Because like Medicare covers a whole bunch of stuff, right? It probably doesn't cover this. What does it cost? Because, think about it. God choosing to make someone alive. What what does a life cost? And not just a life in this world, but eternal life. I mean, I might not be able to pay it, but surely he wants me to pay him back or something. Surely. Well, take a look at verse 8 to 9. What does it cost? For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And look at these next words. This is tremendously important. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. What's it cost? God's grace costs us nothing. The benefits of Christ's death and resurrection to us in terms of salvation, God's kindness, the riches of his mercy, costs us nothing. (laughs) It is so important to grip this. This is the heart of what grace actually is. Think about it this way. And again, kids, think about the Christmas presents you got 
right? All your great Christmas presents. Did you also get a bill under the Christmas tree saying, this costs $100. Please pay $100 for your gifts. Did you get that? $100, $200? I bet they're expensive gifts. Are you sure you didn't have to pay anyone back for them? That's right, because they were gifts. You don't have to pay someone for a gift. And God's grace is a gift. It is a gift. We don't have to pay for it in advance and we don't have to pay it back. We receive all these benefits, forgiveness, new life, everything in between, simply by faith. By choosing to trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection for us. And just consider how different that is to literally every other religion, every other worldview in the world today. Right? Uh, every other system of thought answers the question, how am I saved? Or how do I find true and lasting happiness? Or how do I make meaning of my life by saying, you do it by works? For example, Islam has its five pillars, right? These five different practices you have to participate in without fail in order to give yourself the maximum chance of God saving you. Uh, all the different Muslim friends I've had and Muslims I've talked to across time uh, have, when I've asked them, you know, how do you know that you're saved by God? Every single one of them has said something like, I, I can't know because at best I'm maybe 50-50 at the moment. Uh, I've done some good things, I've done some bad things. Sometimes I've obeyed Allah and sometimes I have not. And so I'm just going to have to wait and see. I don't know right? because it's based on works. Buddhism has the need to meditate and detach yourself from all worldly things. Hinduism has the need to appease the deity of the particular people of which you are a part. Uh, and even if you want to just think non-religion, right? Atheism, secularism, any non-belief in God, um, similarly makes meaning of life by works because life is short. I've got to make the most of it that I can. And so again, whether that for me is climbing the career ladder and, and gaining respect or wealth, whether that's finding the right relationship, or even, and this is increasingly popular in the world today, trying to right the wrongs of the world. A good thing, but how I make meaning of my life? Oh yes, by trying to right the wrongs of the world. It's about what I do and what I contribute to. It's all about what I do, whereas Christianity is about what God has done for me. It's do versus done. Huge difference. An eternity of difference between those two things. And again, this is the heart of grace. It's just about trusting what Christ has done for us at the cross. Again, what can a dead person do? Nothing. We need God to do it. Hence verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Do you know this grace of God? Have you embraced it for yourself? Are you presently trusting in Jesus Christ? And again, Someone can be sitting in a church their whole life. They can even be baptized. Uh, they could be uh, uh, having uh, been part of a Bible study. They could have even been serving as part of the church for years, decades, and totally miss the reality of God's grace. They just don't, don't get this. In their heart, all they've been doing actually is to try and earn God's favor. Or, and this often happens, I've seen this, um, they've started with God's grace. They started years ago with the freshness of, of that reality. It's what God has done for me, but somewhere along the time it's become twisted. And now it's about what I do. And I feel tired. And I, I actually feel like I don't want to keep doing this. But 
I've got to keep doing it. Otherwise, da, 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 right? Like, there's a reason that Paul, in several of his letters, talks about that concept. You started with grace, but then somewhere along the line, you lost it, right? Because that's what happens. Grace is one of the easiest things to forget. Is that you? And don't hear that as an accusation, right? It's in our nature to actually forget God's grace. Hear this instead as an invitation. You can stop. You can stop trying to earn God's favor. You can simply embrace the gift of God's grace by faith. Trust in Jesus, whether for the first time or or now for the hundredth time. Trust in his sacrificial death for you. Trust that he's the one who brings you from sin to forgiveness, from wrath to kindness, from death to life. You can rest in the arms of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Whether this is your first time or you've heard it all your life, this good news of God's grace is for you. Though one more thing to say. I'll be reasonably quick with this. How do I know if I've received God's grace? How do I know? Because, you know, it's not like there's a moment where literally I see the lid of a coffin open and I stand up and I go, well, I was dead and now I'm living. You know, that, that, that doesn't happen for us. So how do I know that I've received God's grace? Well, here's the key. When you really get God's grace... When you get God's grace, God's grace gets you. Right? When you get God's grace, God's grace gets you. It changes you. You begin to live a new life over time. Right? God takes us just as we are, dead and sinful people. He doesn't leave us just as we are. This is how you can know if you've received God's grace. Verse 10 actually unpacks this for us. Have a look. For we are God's workmanship. That means God's the one actually who's created and saved us. We don't do it ourselves. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And hear that correctly. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Right? This is actually the outcome of having been saved. We are saved to begin doing good works that honor God and that love others. Right, And so how can you know if you've really God's, got God's grace? How can you know if you're really saved? Well, first, if you are presently indeed trusting in Jesus that he has saved you, his death and resurrection alone is your hope of, of uh, eternal life and relationship with God. If you believe, you trust, you have faith in Jesus. And then, second, you begin to see evidence that God's grace is actually changing you leading you to live a new life. You begin to see evidence that you're no longer following the ways of this world or rejecting God's authority or living however you want. And sometimes um, people talk about this as like the root and the fruit of salvation. So consider a a tree like this one, right? Um, uh, A tree without roots or with dead roots or unhealthy roots isn't alive, right? And you can't see the roots, So how do you know whether that tree's alive or not? Well, you look for fruit. If it's it's not bearing any fruit, then you sort of go, well, maybe there's something wrong with the roots. Similarly, if the roots of the tree are healthy, then it will, by necessity, if it's a fruit tree, bear fruit. And so you can look at the fruit and go, well, probably the roots are okay, the roots are healthy. 
If you look at a tree without fruit, you go, hmm, maybe there's something wrong with the roots. If you look at the tree with fruit, you go, oh, probably the roots are healthy and alive. So too when it comes to the dynamic between faith and works. You can't really see faith, can you? You might feel it, you might declare it, but you can't really see it. What you can see is the fruit. And so if you see someone who is not being changed by God's grace, is not actually beginning to live a new life, beginning to live to worship and honour God, beginning to live in a way that loves and honours others, then in the way that God says too, then um, you sort of surmise, well, maybe even if they say they have faith, perhaps they don't. We, we're cautious around that, right? But hmm, yeah, the, the fruit isn't matching what I would expect of the root. Similarly, if you see someone that does display that evidence, what we might call a Christian testimony, and not just at one time, but a testimony you know, every day, every week, every year of their life, there's something that God is doing, they're changing this person, then you go, oh, there's fruit, probably there's the root of salvation, which is genuine faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, God's grace changes us. It's not immediately all at once. It's over time, all of that, yep. But certainly over time, there's evidence that we belong to God. That's part of how we can know whether we have indeed experienced God's saving grace. And just as a side note, you know, part of that is what we're actually trying to capture in the next year as we go through this transition that, that Rob talked about at the previous AGM, we talked about a bit last year, this transition towards membership or a more formal membership at this church. Right? This isn't legalism. Membership, where you make a commitment to say, yeah, this is my church, and yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to commit really to serving and loving Jesus here. Uh, that's not legalism. It might, to some, sound like it, because you go, oh, you've got these rules, and you've got these standards and things, and I don't know, that, that feels like it's just good works. That feels like it's just legalism. But actually, no, it's the outworking and outpouring of God's grace. Because... Really, it's about making a commitment as a result of God's grace. Only Christians make it. <laughs> Only Christians who have experienced God's grace would ever be a member of a church, right? Like, if you want a social club, go do something different. There's social clubs that won't require anything of you beyond maybe turning up, right? But to be part of Jesus' church, there are actually requirements, there are commitments that one makes, not to experience God's grace, but because they've experienced God's grace. And so... We commit by saying, you know, God's grace to us is so good that we just want to love and serve each other with all of our hearts. That's the outpouring of God's grace in us. And so we say, you know, I'm going to commit to help others in this church to grow in faith. I'm going to commit to pray for them and with them, to read the scriptures with them, to encourage them to read the scriptures, support my brothers and sisters in the fight against sin. I'm going to serve with them, give with them, work together to reach the lost with them. These are commitments I'm going to make because God's grace is so good. Not legalism, the outworking and outpouring of God's grace. It's actually the fruit of God's grace. And I can't wait to actually see that grow in our church. We've got it in part, but I think we can grow even more with this transition. But here's the point. God's grace does change us. It changes the way we think and live and relate to his people. And so, to finish, do you know God's grace? Are you presently trusting in Jesus? And do you see some evidence, even however slight, however just, just embryonic, but something that's, that's showing you, yes, God's grace is actually changing me? If not, then what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what the answer is not. 
The answer isn't to work harder. Right? If you've got a dead or dying tree with bad roots, you don't go and hang fruit on it to make it alive. Right? Like little Christmas decorations. You don't do that. You've got to come back to the root. <laughs> so the answer is actually to ask, are you really trusting Jesus? Do you know him? Are you trusting that Jesus lived, died and rose to save you personally, that you need him to save you? Because you deserve, by virtue of your sin, God's judgment and hell. Do you believe the bad news and the good news of God's grace? That's the question to ask. And if the answer to that is no, I don't believe that. Or I'm actually not sure if I believe that. Or even just I think I believe that, but I don't really see much evidence in my life that I do. Then please, please, please don't just shelve that. Don't forget about it. This is so important, friends. In fact, you might have walked into this building this morning saying, I'm a Christian, and then heard all this from God's word and gone, oh, I've got some big questions. Don't just shelve it. It might feel a little bit embarrassing to deal with that. But gosh, that's so much better to be a bit embarrassed and be on the right side of God's grace than to be a bit embarrassed, uh, avoid embarrassment and not be on the right side of God's grace. Eternity literally hangs on the balance for every single one of us based on how we answer these questions. And God is there, completely willing to show you the riches of his kindness, the enormity of his grace. He's there. He's done it already, shown it through Jesus. So please, talk to someone today if that's you. Push through the embarrassment. It's okay. <laughs> Come and talk with me or Rob or Andrew, one of our wives. Talk with someone else that you know here. And look, on the other hand, if you're someone who can say, yes, I do trust in Jesus right now. I believe I have experienced and am experiencing God's grace. I can see his grace changing me. Then let me just say this. Praise God. <laughs> That's so good. That's actually, uh, I want you to be refreshed by that truth, by the good news of God's grace. Because you can stand confidently in the grace of God. And hear this, weary sinner, weary sinner, rest in the arms of Christ, your Savior. Know that he has you. Know that he's saved you. Know that he's growing you. Know that he's got you know that he'll bring you home. And he has an eternity of kindness for you because of his great love. This is the good news of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, those of us who are genuinely in you because of your, the riches of your mercy, your kindness to us, our undeserved, uh, this undeserved grace that you give to us, Lord. In fact, the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve your wrath. But Lord, Oh, we, what can we say but thank you that, that we receive your kindness, your mercy, your grace, your love, even at the cost of your son. Lord, I, I would pray that the response of every person in this building actually as a result of what we've heard today would be to say we have a great saviour in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. And we're going to reflect on and proclaim